All right, so I'm going to get you to grab your Bibles, if you would, and let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount called, uh, But I Say, walking through various areas of what the righteousness of Jesus looks like. As you're turning there, let me just tell you a quick story. I was, as a kid, I was a bit of a fighter. Um, I had this kind of tendency growing up to not walk away from conflict, to stay, you know, kind of engaged. I hated being bullied, and so it seems like I was always in a fight somewhere all the time. And I remember the very first fight that I ever got in. And it's hard for me to call it a fight because it really, as I tell the story, you're going to realize it wasn't a fight. I just got beat up. Um, and so I remember being at the playground. I was eight or nine years old. I don't even remember how old I was. And I was at the playground and there was a bully out there and he was kind of shoving people around. And I was kind of a small guy, but I didn't care because that's just, I hated people bullying people. And so I remember just saying to this guy, I was like, I will whip you all over this playground. And here's the problem with that. First of all, I had never been in a fight, but I watched one on television you see the problem. And so I just said, I said, I will whip you all over this playground. I looked at my buddy and I gave him a high five and I began to walk away and something happened. The bottom of his foot was introduced to the back of my head. Dude drop kicked me. I mean, to the ground. I'm, I don't even know. I don't even It could have been a girl back there. Dropping. I don't know. All I know is after they drop kicked me, they got on top of me, rolled me over because apparently he didn't want my face to be uninvited to the party he was throwing. And he beat the snot out of me. And I mean, I walked out of that thing limping, bloody nose, black eye, and here's the three lessons that I learned. Number one, talk is cheap. Fighting is real. It's not just a thing on the movies, all right? And you never turn your back on someone or something that wants to harm you. Like those were three big life lessons for me. And I tell this story to simply say this. My experience on the playground that day really could describe our lives in this room, many of us, in regards to our fight for sexual purity. That far too often our intentions are great, our ambitions are high, but the fight is real, and rather than understanding how real the fight is, we continually turn our back on an enemy that wants to destroy us. And because of this, there just seems to be this cycle in our life of failure, of misery, of shame, of finding a place where there's some grace and then turning around, doing the same thing over again. And the cycle of our life is a constant being just whipped all over the playground of life and not finding true victory in this area. And I know this is the case because this is the story for my life. According to statistics, most of us in this room would have the same story to the most part. We battle daily with sexual thoughts desires that are sinful. Many in this room are battling an addiction to pornography and most in this room are losing the battle. And this fight has been real in my life. I never forget when I was first introduced to this wrestling in my heart. It was uh, hanging out with a buddy when I was, I don't know how old, eight, nine years old. And he says, hey, I got this thing. I want you to see this magazine that I got. And with one glance, there was something that woke up inside of me, a sin tendency. And ever since then, there has been a battle in my life in this area. And I'm vulnerable with sharing that story simply because I don't think I'm alone in this room. The truth is there are men and women all over this, students all over this room, and there is a very real fight in your life every single day for purity. 
There are thoughts that you don't necessarily want to have, but it seems that those thoughts control you. There are behaviors that you can seem to have on repeat that you don't like to have on repeat. And for many in this room, there's just this failure after failure and misery and shame and guilt. And here's the great news for all of us today. You ready for the good news? There's victory in Jesus. Is that Jesus came to do a work in our hearts so that he could transform us, not just our outward behavior. See, that's where most of the failure is. Most of us are losing this battle of sexual purity because we're only fighting what's going on on the outside in our behavior, not recognizing that the real enemy is not drop kicking us from behind, it's from within. It's the, it's the flesh that wants to live with out-of-control desires to lead us down paths that we, we, we feel like we need to go down at the moment only to find regret and remorse on the other side of it. But Jesus wants to come and do something greater than just change the external actions or behavior of our life. He wants to come in and transform who we are on the inside. And this is the power of Jesus that we're going to see this morning. If you got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We're going to start reading in verse 27. And here's what Jesus is going to do. He is going to do just like he's done throughout this sermon on the mount. He is going to go beyond the external actions. And he's going to address the real issue of the sin of the heart. And in a world where we are bombarded with images, we are bombarded with conversation, with lifestyles, with freedoms and, and ideologies that lead us down a continual path of compromising our sexual purity, we desperately need the words of Jesus in our life. Amen? And here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He says, you heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, Jesus is going to address this issue of sexual purity with two really primary truths that he's going to communicate two, two uh, ideas that I want to give you that Jesus highlights here. And I think this is foundational for us. These are primary. If we're going to fight well for the fight of purity, we got to understand the two truths that we, we see here in this text. Here's number one. If you're taking notes, write this down. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus, first of all, affirms the standard of sexual fidelity. Jesus affirms the standard of sexual fidelity. Look what he says in verse number 28. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he is quoting the, the general understanding of the seventh commandment. The 10 commandments, the seventh commandment is you shall not commit adultery. So Jesus almost verbatim is quoting the, the, the predominant interpretation of the seventh command. Now, most scholars would agree on this, that while there was distorted application of the seventh command with a lot of permi permission given um, in a way to, to, to bend the rules by religious leaders, but the common idea is this, is that what you find in the seventh commandment is a sexual ethic. And that sexual ethic is not just merely forbidding a married person to cheat on their spouse, but rather it's addressing a sexual ethic that simply is this. All sexual activity outside the coven of marriage is sin. It is to be avoided. So this is not 
only speaking of faithfulness within the marriage, but rather the wholeness of faithfulness sexually, that all sexual behavior outside the context of marriage is sinful. And this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus, listen to this, affirms here that, affirms here that God's plan, listen to this, for all, everybody say all, for all expression or sexual expression to be experienced by one man and one woman within the confines of covenant marriage. This is what Jesus affirms here, that God created this gift of sex. He wants us to experience it. By the way, listen, sex is God's idea. I know for some of you in the room, like, like eyes right here just for a minute, okay? I know you're like, I don't know, look at my pastor in the eye when he uses the word sex a lot. Some of you are gonna take more notes than ever. You're like, I'm not making eye contact at all. I'm just like right here, I'm focused right here because I'm not looking up. Sex is God's idea. God created sex. The Bible says that God is a good God who gives good gifts to humanity. And yet this gift that God has given, because God is the designer and the creator of the gift, God knows the most appropriate place to experience his gift in a way that brings the greatest joy and fulfillment. So therefore, this sexual ethic that we find, this law, this command that all sexual expression should only be experienced in the confines of covenant marriage between one man and one woman and for a lifetime. This is where God says, look, look, sex is a gift that I'm giving you. And it's in this engagement of sexual uh, intercourse where you will find the highest level and the most vulnerable place of intimacy with another person. And because God knows that sex in this vulnerable, intimate experience is such a powerful thing, he says, I want to make sure that there's a relationship that I create that gives you the best place and the only place for this to be walked in. So when God puts parameters around gifts that he gives us and says, it's within these parameters that I want you to walk in this gift. He's not doing this to subtract our joy or our fulfillment. He's actually doing this to fulfill our enjoyment and satisfaction. So let me illustrate it like this. If I ask this question, I want you to give me your answer. Is fire bad? Is fire bad? What's your answer? Depends, right? Fire, it depends. Fire could be bad, it could, it could be good, right? So think about it like this. So if, if fire it could be useful for a lot of things. So if it, it's useful for light, it's useful for warmth, you can cook. Um, it, it can bring kind of comfort. You know, if you're out uh, camping somewhere, you build a fire and you kind of feel safe there by the fire. So fire is actually a really great gift that God has given humanity and we can experience a lot of good things from it. But fire can also burn down a house and destroy a life. So for instance, in my house, if I have a fire in the fireplace, it can do all of those things that I just described for my family. But if I could just took it a couple of feet outside the fireplace and place it in the middle of my living room, now that thing which is a blessing and a good gift from God now can destroy my family and my home. God puts sexual parameters and he creates a context for sexual experience and expression because he understands that in its proper context, it can be a beautiful gift. And outside of its proper context, it can destroy your life. 
And when you live in a culture like we live, where we're bombarded with images, we're bombarded with temptations, it's like the, the highest good in our culture is whatever feels good to you, whatever makes you happy, whatever desires you have, regardless of what they are, you pursue those and you chase after those. You live for you and you experience. So whatever sexually you want to do and, and, and whatever you identify yourself with. And I, listen, I'm not minimizing the very real desires that many people have in the realm of their sexuality. And I'm I'm not diminishing the very real battle, but what I'm saying is that in a culture that says to you, whatever you desire and whatever you feel you pursue is a culture that's going to drive you down a path of destruction because at the end, you're not going to find what you hope to find. And if you just look at what's happening with the sexual revolution in our culture and in our world, this idea that we don't need guardrails, we don't need parameters, we don't need boundaries, just free sexual expression, live and do and pursue what you want, when you want, with who you want. We're, we're, we're pursuing this in this thought that if we can just do what makes us happy, then we will be satisfied. The problem is it never satisfies. It only leads to deeper, darker things that we'll pursue. And listen, just think about this for a minute. Never in history has there been more sex crimes being committed than what we're seeing committed today. In all of our promiscuity and all of the freedoms that culture wants to give us, it's not satisfying us. It's just creating deeper longing for, for things that are darker and darker and darker. And rather than humanity going, oh man, I'm happy. Now we're trying to find ways to act upon these sexual impulses in even greater, greater most evil ways. We're seeing more children sexually abused today than ever before in history. We're seeing more human trafficking, more slaves today in the sex industry than the history of this nation. There's something wrong. What we need is a standard. And Jesus says, I affirm this standard of sexual fidelity. And in a culture that causes us to drift because of music and because of movies and because of uh, iconic figures and because of social media and because of how we're being wired and bombarded to think sexually, what's happening is, is that Christianity and the church is drifting along with culture. And listen, we've got to understand it ends in destruction. The scripture says this in Proverbs, there's a way that seems right to man. And the end is destruction. So here's what we do. When we go to the beach with our kids... We talk about the current. We always want to do a crash course in current. So we always talk about, hey, there's a current. It's an undertow. It's, it can be dangerous and pull you and suck you out in the ocean, but it also can just make you drift along. So what we do when we get to the beach is that we set up our, our, our umbrella and our chairs, and we tell our kids, this is the standard. This is the point of reference. So as you get in the water and you play, what's going to happen is the current is just going to, you're going to drift along. And if you're not careful, you're going to look up and you're going to not know where you are and not know how to get back to where you need to be. And so there has to be this constant as we're, as they're in the water to look up, where's the standard? There's the umbrella. I got to get back over here and line myself up with the umbrella. Otherwise they just drift and drift and drift to a point of which it could be very dangerous for them. And here's what Jesus is saying. I'm putting the umbrella in the sand. I want to give you a reference point in the midst of the culture and the, and the, and the, and the drifting that is happening in the current of culture that you don't get swept away into a place that you don't want to go because the end is destruction. That's what Jesus does first. Jesus affirms the standard of sexual fidelity. Here's the number two. Jesus elevates our understanding of sexual purity. 
He elevates our understanding of sexual purity. Look what he says in verse 27. Anybody needs to take a deep breath. Let me take a deep breath because this is going to be right at the heart of our issue. Look what he says here. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, some of you were hoping I would stop right there and be like, yes, I'm off the hook. I'm, I'm good today. But, verse 28, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, now listen to this. Jesus here clarifies the intent of the seventh commandment. You see, the religious leaders, in an attempt to justify their own sinful behavior. They just limited things to the letter of the law and even at times a distortion of the letter of the law. Like making certain exceptions. Like if it's a Gentile wife, then it doesn't really matter what I do. Like there were all kinds of schools of thought that allowed men to justify their sexual pursuit and their sin. But Jesus is coming back and he's saying, listen, the, the heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. He wants to show us the intent of what the seventh commandment was all about. Listen, and it wasn't just about the physical act of adultery. Jesus is saying, listen, this command is not just about the physical engagement with someone sexually, but actually it's something that occurs in the heart. And so Jesus, again, in the sermon, something you're going to see constantly, he's going to move beyond the outward action and deal with the internal condition of the heart. Why? Because it's what's inside of us that leads us to our behavior. And by the way, even if it doesn't lead us to acting on those things that are in us, those things in and of themselves in us are still sinful. It's important we see this. Now, here's what this means for us. Who's guilty of this? Everybody. So we now can breathe knowing we all come to this place guilty. Now let's make sure that we understand what we mean with Guilty. Notice the words Jesus uses here. He, he wants to help us understand what it means to commit adultery in the heart or adultery in the mind. Look what he says, verse 28. He says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman. Now, eyes right here just for a minute. Jesus is not limiting this sin only to men. Jesus is not negating the fact that women can do this, that women can have this, this type of, of thought process and it is sinful when a woman does this. What Jesus is doing here is really radical in his day. Jesus was addressing a culture where men were getting the pass on this issue. And he's saying, listen, men, you don't get a pass anymore. I'm gonna show you the heart of what I desire for you. You're living in a culture where women are expected to hold this line of purity and men get to do what they want. And I'm telling you, in my kingdom, you're not getting off, the, you're not getting off that easy. You're not getting a pass on this one. And so Jesus says this, anyone, any man or person who looks at a woman, listen to this, with lustful intent. Now, lustful intent, underline and circle this word. Lustful intent does not merely, listen to this, does not merely looking at someone and noticing their beauty or even being sexually attracted to them. It's normal and it is something God has created in us to be sexually attracted to people or to see someone and consider them beautiful. That's not what Jesus is doing here. This word here, lustful intent, is a Greek word, epithumeo. So why is that important? Epithumeo is, is a word that means to long or hunger for in a way that sets your heart on something. Let me explain it to you with a couple of other verses where this word is used. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? Where, where the, the, the son had left... He squandered all of his resources and he found himself hungry and broke. He was feeding the pigs. Remember the story? 
And it says, as he looked at the pig trough and saw what they were eating, he was so hungry that he longed to fill his stomach with the food of the pigs. The word longed there is epithemeo. It's the same word that he says, lustful intent. The story of Jesus, uh, Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man not sharing his, uh, his, his wealth with the poor and Lazarus there, this poor man who loves God. And it says that he was so hungry that he longed to feed himself with the crumbs that fell from the table of the rich man. The word used there is epithemeo. It's the same word, lustful intent. So the idea is it's not just a glance where you notice someone's beauty or even say, oh, they're physically, sexually attractive. It is when you set your heart and you long for and you put your mind on that in a way that you are pursuing, even in the mind, some sort of mental or physical sexual gratification. It's not that first glance of, hey, they're pretty or they're attractive. It's this sense of, Setting my heart on that which I find attractive in a way where I am mentally taking what does not belong to me. This is important. He says, everyone who looks, check this out, with lustful intent. The word look there, looks, is present active. This means ongoing, purposeful gaze. So it's not that momentary temptation It's this intentional gazing on something for the purpose of finding some sort of sexual mental gratification. So let me make sure we understand this. I'm going to be very clear here. A man who gazes at a woman, a woman who gazes at a man, or if it's same-sex attraction, when this happens for the purpose of wanting him or her sexually, has mentally, the person who does, has mentally and spiritually committed adultery. This is what Jesus is saying here. Meaning this, listen, that when we deliberately use our eyes and our mind to awaken our lust, when we look and long for uh, someone in such a way that passion is awakened and desire is deliberately stimulated, it is adultery. Now, Now listen to this, don't miss this. The fact that sex that takes place in the brain has fewer consequences than sex that takes place on the bed does not diminish this truth. Jesus says it's adultery. Now, let me give you some case in points here. So this could be the flirtatious conversation that you kind of think about and you engage with someone, you find them attractive. And so there's this sense of, I'm going to kind of be flirtatious and kind of send some vibes off. Hopefully they'll send some back. And just for that purpose of, man, I feel something about them or for them in this moment. And I know I'm crossing a line. My spouse was here or their spouse was here. This would not be okay. You might not have done anything, but what's the intent in that? It might be that that purposeful bumping into someone, making contact with them, because we know that anytime we interact with them, there's something that's exciting happening in us sexually. It means watching a movie or a show because we know that what the images are gonna be are going to feed some of those desires and be pleasing sexually. It could be replaying thoughts or images in your mind of the person you find attractive, looking at pornography, searching social media to see that ex, or to find that person that you find attractive, feeding those feelings. Here's what Jesus is saying. 
When we do this, we have already committed adultery in our heart. Listen to this. Lustful intent does not lead to adultery. Look at me. According to Jesus, it is adultery. It doesn't lead to it. It is. In other words, fantasized immorality is just as sinful to God as physical immorality. So what Jesus is doing here is what? He's elevating the standard. He's elevating our understanding of sexual purity. And I don't know about you. He got real quiet in here, by the way. You, you look at this text. This is where I am. Who's not guilty of this? I mean, who's not guilty of this? And see, this puts us in a position where we see this and we no longer can justify our behavior with, with just religious practices that says, let me just not act upon it. Let me just not physically indulge it. Let me just deal with the tip of the iceberg that's on the surface and not actually service it. And yet we're content with everything that's below the surface. Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're not getting off that easy. I'm going to deal with what's happening in your heart because that is where sin resides. And see, what should happen in our hearts when we see this is this sense of desperation. Like, like who can live up to this standard? And the answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. And when Jesus says, this is the standard that I'm calling my citizens to live up to, that means that not only do we have to rest in Jesus's ability to live this out, but we've got to rest in his power to live this out in us. Self-will and self-power only gets you so far, although it is a part of the process we're going to see very clearly. So what do we do? This, was, this should be the question we're wrestling with. What do we do now? So let me give you a, a fight plan. Let me give you a battle plan. You ready for it? Write this down. If you're taking notes, put it in your phone. Make sure you're keeping up with this. This is going to be really helpful. And this all comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. So what do we do? Number one is this. Write this down. Listen, we must immerse ourselves in the gospel. Immerse yourself in the gospel. See, the greater context of the Sermon on the Mount is this. We need a righteousness that's far greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Like the standard of the kingdom is much higher than the standard of religion. And no one can enter into the kingdom by merit of religion or, or practicing certain behaviors or limiting to certain actions. That the standard of Jesus is so incredibly high that not even the best of the best, the scribes and the Pharisees, are getting in on the basis of their own righteousness. We need a righteousness that is an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is foreign to us. And this is the greater context. And this is the righteousness we need is the righteousness that Jesus came to provide. We also need a power at work in us greater than our own strength. We need a transformation from the inside out, and no religion can do this. Only the inside out working of the gospel of Jesus in our lives. So we immerse ourselves in the gospel. I'm going to get practical here because we say that and we're like, okay, I don't know what that means. So if you, if you want to turn back in your Bible, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it should be about a page over in some of your Bibles. Remember that Jesus starts out the sermon by talking about the Beatitudes. We said the Beatitudes are the disposition of kingdom citizens. It's the clothing we wear. It's the disposition before God and before others. 
And it starts with this posture before God. And this, I believe, these, the first four Beatitudes, I believe this is what it looks like for us to daily immerse ourselves into the gospel. Look what Jesus says here. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those uh, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So let me make this very simple for you, okay? First four, how, what does it look like to um, uh, immerse ourselves into the gospel? The first one is humility. Poor in spirit. It is to come before God and acknowledge I am spiritually bankrupt. In light of your standard, I recognize I have nothing to bring to the table. I am busted and I am broken and I have nothing in and of myself to walk this life that you're calling me to walk. So we come before him with our hands open going, I'm empty, I'm broken, I'm poor. I have nothing to bring to the table. This puts us in a posture of complete dependence. Now, when we understand the depth of our depravity because we are poor in spirit, then it leads us to number two. This is repentance. This is what it means to immerse ourselves. It is to walk in the posture of repentance so that the depravity that's in us, we don't grow content with, we are broken and crushed over it. So there should be this constant state of confession that we are acknowledging, God, my sin is ever before you. And God, I am poor in spirit. Therefore, I need your righteousness. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. And so we identify and we call out our sin and we just live in this posture of repentance where we're resting completely on, on a continual basis in the grace and mercy that's found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Repentance, listen, be, listen to this, should be the posture that defines the life of a Christian. This is how we immerse ourselves. because when you repent, what are you doing? You are throwing yourself at the cross daily. Here's number three, surrender. He says, blessed are the meek. The idea of meek here is that which is completely surrendered to God. It is to relinquish the rights of our life like a, a horse taking its power and now being under the constraint of the master. That's what it means to be meek. It is to be clay in the hands of the potter. And so when we understand how we immerse ourselves in the gospel is we, we're broken, we're poor in spirit, we have nothing to offer, and therefore we're in need of forgiveness and we repent. And as we do this, we are throwing our hands up in surrender saying, God, you've got to have control of my life. When Paul says, walk in the fullness of the spirit, it's what means walking in the posture of surrender. Then leads to number four. What does it mean to immerse yourself in the gospel? Poor in spirit, humility, repentance, mourning over your sin, meekness, come to a place of surrender, and then you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here's what that simply means. It means that you pursue Jesus with everything. Now you're feasting on Christ as the one who satisfies the soul. Now I'm gonna come back to that at the very end. But this is what it looks like to immerse ourselves into the gospel. Now, two things happen when you immerse yourself into the gospel, and that's the posture in which you live. Two words, rest and rely. When you immerse yourself into the gospel, when you are poor in spirit and mourning over your sin and you're meek and you're hungering and thirsting and feasting on the righteousness of Jesus, you rest in the gospel. You come to the conclusion, look, I'm not enough. I look at this passage and I'm as guilty as sin, literally guilty as sin. 
But then I rest in the reality that though I am guilty, Jesus took my place and he stood and was condemned for me so that the guilt might be removed and the shame might be taken and Jesus received so that I can now rest knowing that even though sin like this resides in my heart, I'm not defined by my sin, I'm defined by the righteousness of Jesus. We rest and then we rely we recognize that now the presence of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Therefore, I live with now a power that takes the righteousness that is mine in Christ and now applies it to my life so that I can overcome not just the external action of my sin, but now there is an internal transformation of my heart leading me to desire Jesus above all. And I rely on his strength. His power, listen to this, is made perfect in my what? My weakness. So that's the first. Immerse yourself into the gospel. Here's number two. This is where you've got to get into the nitty gritty and roll your sleeves up and get after it. Number two, identify specific areas of struggle. Identify specific areas of struggle. Look what he says in verse 29. He says, if your right eye, you might want to underline, he's going to say it twice, underline this phrase, causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you, it's better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand, here it is again, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now notice what Jesus does here. He, he's, he's identifying hypothetically two specific areas that might lead us to sin and to struggle. And he says it twice. He's talking about the eye and the hand. He's not saying the eye is the problem or the hand is the problem. He's saying if... If your issue is the eye, acknowledge it and deal with it. If your issue is the hand, acknowledge it and deal with it. The phrase here causes you to sin. He repeats it twice. It's a, it's a, it's a word that could be translated, um, your stumbling or your failing. Another way of interpreting this is this. He says, whatever is your snare that causes you to be in the trap. You got to acknowledge it. And I love this. It's in, it's in a present participle. It's a present participle, which means is what is the thing that continues to trip you up, continues to trap you, continues to make you stumble, continues to make you fall? And I would, I would promise you this. I would, I would dare to say to every single person in here, if you look at the track record of cycle of sin in your life, specifically in the area of sexual sin, what you will find, there are triggers and there are traps that the enemy uses over and over and over again in your life. And Jesus is saying, you got to start identifying those areas so you can deal with it. I, I was, early I was t telling a story about um, when we were building our house a couple of years ago, uh, we were getting to the place where our, the, the, the floor joists between our first floor and second uh, floor were needing to be closed up. So you have these trusses there with these big gaps in there and they hadn't been closed up yet. And they were getting to the place where we were going to board them up, but I had this stray cat that got into the house and it got in between the floor, the second uh, story and the, and, the, and, the, and the first floor. And uh, I was worried because the carpenters were, at any day could show up and board up that floor and then I'm going to have a trouble in my hands. I'm thinking it's a pregnant cat that's coming in there and, uh, and, and, and having kittens. And, and I'm, now I'm just picturing, I've had to rip floors out to find it once it's boarded up. And, and I didn't want to go through that nightmare. And I'm not a big cat person, by the way. I know some of you cat lovers. I do believe that every person needs to have one cat buried in their backyard. And um, <laughs> the, uh, 
Look, don't email me. Don't email me. If you want to email me, my email address is dnorris at nbbctx.org. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm working like crazy to get this cat out here. So I got some cat food and tried to trap it, got a little, little varmint trap. Cat apparently was being trapped by other people because it knew it didn't, it got the food and never, never tripped the trap. And, and so I didn't know what to do. So one day I walked in and I just was like, maybe I can just call the cat. Maybe I got the secret cat language. I don't know. And I walked in, I was like, yeah, pretty good, huh? So I, I started doing this and all of a sudden the cat meowed back. I was like, okay. So I meowed again, it meowed back. I meowed again, it meowed back. And, and the closer, uh, the, 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 the more I meowed, the closer I heard its reply. It was coming to me. Then I heard footsteps. And all of a sudden it peeked around the corner. And as soon as I said meow, it's like, you ain't a cat. And it ran away. And then so I would do it again. An hour later, I'd come back. I would do it again. It would, this time it would creep all the way outside the door and see me and just kind of look and then run off. I did this for three days. I felt crazy. The neighbors probably have no idea. And I'm sitting here and I can, but every time, listen to this, even though the cat knew who was calling it, whether it's a desire for companionship or what, I don't know. But every time, regardless, it would come to me every time and then recognize, and then, then I almost, I had grabbed it a few times. So this cat, despite the fact that it knew that it was me calling it, would come every single time. I finally caught the cat. I'm gonna tell you how. I knew its weakness was the meow. And so what I did, it was in a closet. I walked in this room and I turned the lights off and I pulled up a cat, this is no joke, a YouTube video of 10 minutes of a cat meowing. Like I'll make house calls for the right price, I'll help you. <laughs> and I laid the phone in the windowsill and I opened the window and then I went behind a door and I hid and sure enough, just like the last three days, every single time that cat came out, I shut the door in behind it and it looked at me and it could not resist the meow and it walked over and finally I just kind of shoot her out the door, uh, out the window, shut the window, problem solved. Aren't you impressed? So now, yeah, the, the, the 930 applauded at that. I said, I just preached the gospel and no one applauded, but I got the cat out of the house and that's a, vic a victory, I guess. So you hear that story and you're like, man, what a dumb cat. What does that make us? The meow of the enemy calls us. We promise ourselves we're not going to run to it again. And here we come right back to it. This time I'm going to resist. And then there goes the meow and there we go again. And every time we go, it's shame and it's guilt and it's, I'm never going to do it again. And the cat still lingers and the meow is still there. It could be something as simple as your cell phone. It could be something as silly as a mood you are in that oftentimes will trigger certain desires and needs for certain things sexually might be relationships you're in that continue to trip you up. It might be a job that you have where you have to travel and you know every time you travel alone without your spouse or without a companion that you fall into the same sin over and over again. And if you'll just look at your life, you're going to find the traps that the enemy continues to set in your life. It's time to identify them so that you can deal with them. And that's how we deal with it. Number three, check this out. 
we need to take radical action to fight against it. Take radical action to fight against it. So once we identify it, we got to do something about it. Look what he says in verse 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, Jesus here is using hyperbole. Now, I don't, hyperbole is simply an overemphasis. I don't want to emphasize the nature of the overemphasis because when we do that, we minimize the seriousness that Jesus is taking here with sin. So I don't want us to go, well, he really doesn't mean pluck our eye out. He really doesn't mean cut our hand off. And I don't think he does. I don't think he wants us gouging our eyes out or cutting our hands. But I don't want us to water down the hyperbole to the point of which what Jesus is saying is we've got to take radical action against sin that continues to trip us up. When he says your right hand or your right eye, the right hand or right eye would be considered the most valuable member of the human body. And Jesus is saying, even if you have to lose that which you value and cherish the most to gain victory over sin, do it. Nothing is off limits. Take radical steps toward purity. He says it would be better for you, listen to this, to go into heaven with one eye and one hand then go to hell with two hands and two eyes. Now, eyes right here for a second. Jesus is not saying that fighting our sin radically is how we enter the kingdom. Jesus is communicating that fighting radically against sin is one of the evidences that we are in it. Jesus is simply saying, check this out. Kingdom citizens will willfully abandon everything that causes us to sin. And, and hear me say this, believer. Listen to me. A true follower of Jesus can never be content with sin in their life. I didn't say you can't sin or you can't have strongholds in your life. But there will be a discontentment and a desire to fight and to rid yourself of it. And so listen, if you are a person, you're like, as long as I don't get caught, I'm cool with it because it's not like I'm cheating on my spouse. It's not like I'm running around. I'm just looking at pornography. Or I'm just flirting with this girl. Or I'm just playing the images in my mind or I'm just messing around on social media and no one's gonna get hurt. It's no big deal. At least I'm not. If that's your disposition, listen to me, you're probably not a believer. We need to examine ourselves. Paul says this, listen to this in Colossians 3, verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetous, covetous, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now listen to this. Put to death is really a softer way of, of saying what the original text says here. In the original text, Paul says, kill whatever's in you. That's leading you astray. In other words, what Jesus and Paul are saying here, we don't flirt with sin, we fight sin. 
We don't manage our sin tendencies. We murder our sin tendencies. We do whatever's necessary to eliminate it from our life. I love this. And this, I don't have time for this. I'm going to tell it anyway. I didn't tell any other stories. I heard a, 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 a pastor at a conference when I first started ministry. I was like, I love this guy. He said, you know, when I was young in the ministry, he said, I'd pray constantly, God, if there's a a woman that is in my path that would ever cause me to trip up and stumble, that would destroy your kingdom. I pray, God, that you would just strike me dead now. And he says, like, now that I'm old and I'm wise, I pray a little different. He said, God, if there's a woman in my life that would cause me to trip and stumble and hurt your ministry, would you just kill her now? <laughs> we need to take sin serious. We need to take sin serious. So let me interpret this in a way that's very practical for us and apply it. So let me just, what is Jesus saying here? If your iPhone causes you to stumble, it's better to turn it off. It's better to go through life with a flip phone and be ridiculed by your friends. than to continue to put the trap in your hand saying you won't do it again. That social media account continues to draw you toward relationships that lead you down thoughts that are not healthy and destructive. It's better for you to disengage from the world and not know what Susie had for lunch. than to be in the loop and have your life burned down. If you travel for a living and it's a great job and you know that you travel alone and every time you get in that hotel room, you go driving, pleading, I just want to be strong this time. And every single time, you know, it's failure after failure and guilt and remorse. It is better for you to quit your job, downsize your life and have less in this world than to let your family be destroyed. Radical steps radical actions. I have a friend who struggles. He's honest about his struggle. And he says, look, I, I battled this and I'll probably battle it my whole life. And here's what he said. He said, there's, when people recommend movies to me, he said, I immediately look up what the content of the movie is. If there's anything that I know will draw me off sides, not just nudity, but anything to draw me off sides sexually, I would rather not watch the movie and be entertained for an hour and a half if it's going to lead to even 30 seconds of the enemy calling my name again. And he says, I've gone so far as that on my home television, I can't rent a PG or PG-13 movie without my wife putting the passcode in to give me permission. One time somebody asked him the question, they said, well, isn't that silly? Don't you feel, don't you feel like embarrassed that your wife has to treat you like a child? He says, no, 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 no. Embarrassment is my kids calling some other man daddy. I'd rather have passwords and a healthy marriage than I would watch what I want to watch like a grown man and have my family destroyed. But here's the, the last thing we do. And this is the where I'm going to land this plane. I don't want you to turn off. When I say that all the time, it's like he's done. I'm not done because this is where it all comes together. What's the last thing we do? We got to get back to the gospel. 
So we immerse ourselves into the gospel. We identify those areas of struggle. We begin to take radical action against them. But above all of this, this is what fuels it. Listen, we need to passionately pursue Jesus with everything. And this is the aim of the entire Sermon on the Mount. You see, Holiness and purity is not discovered merely by the absence of certain behaviors, but the presence of a greater pursuit. It's not just about cutting things out of your life, although we need to cut things out of our life. It's about replacing those things with something that satisfies me even more. It's understanding what Jesus says later on in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey, listen, don't pursue clothes and don't pursue shelter and don't pursue food as your great obsession in life. That's what the unbelievers do. No, 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 no. You're, you're pursuing the physical. You're pursuing the things that don't really matter. Rather than pursue those things, pursue my kingdom, pursue me and my righteousness. And when you get me, you'll get everything else you're, you're going to need with me. And I love this. Jesus doesn't just say, stop pursuing these things. He says, no, 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 no. Replace that pursuit with a greater pursuit that brings greater pleasure and greater satisfaction. And recognize this truth. Listen to me. All of those sexual deviants, all of that pursuit of the mind and the heart and the things that we long for, for sexual gratification. Listen, all those are our hunger pains that sin has created that remind us that what we really long for is Jesus. Why don't we chase those things? It's not a, you realize that your, your sinful pursuit for sex is not about the gratification you get from sex. It's about identity. We are living in a culture right now that wants us to believe that our sexual preferences and desires are what defines us. And so many people are pursuing sex to find identity. Others, it's acceptance. I just want someone to accept me. Other, it's approval. I want you to think well of me. For others, it's intimacy. I feel lonely. And I feel like this is the only thing that I can offer or only thing that I can receive to make me feel loved. And you got Jesus over here saying, you want identity? I'll be your identity. I'll be your king and you will be one of my citizens and you will rule and reign with me forever. Find your identity in me. He's saying to you, acceptance is what you want. Listen, in me, you have all the acceptance you ever need, all of the approval you'll ever want. It's not dependent upon what you do or how you perform or how you look or how you fulfill somebody else's needs. It is found in what I have done for you and you alone. And if you want intimacy, I'm the friend that ain't walking out anywhere. I'm not leaving you. I'm not going to abandon you. It's not merely about the absence of the practice of sexual sin. It's about the active pursuit of King Jesus, who is greater than our sin. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, if you would, this morning, and I'm going to pray over you, and then Pastor Daniel is going to come and dismiss us. There are some of you in this place this morning and what you need is a relationship with Jesus. This sermon and other sermons that we've talked about, you recognizing that there is something missing. You have religion, but you've never had your heart transformed. And maybe this morning, the Holy Spirit of God has spoken to you and there's a desire for you to be saved, to know him. And you can simply respond to the gospel by confessing, God, I, I know I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to be my righteousness. I believe that he died and he resurrected. I want to repent of my sin and turn to you as my king. 
Right now in this room, if that's where you are, I want to encourage you to pray that prayer. If you have questions about it, there's a QR code in the back. See back in front of you. You can snap that with your phone and it'll give you a couple of clicks and you can let one of us know that you have prayed to receive Christ or have questions about it. Or you can grab one of us at Guest Central when we're dismissed in a moment and just say, hey, I want to talk. Others of you, you are living a life of defeat, even though you know Christ. And so today I encourage you, see sexual purity the way Jesus says you should see sexual purity and immerse yourself in the gospel. Identify the the snares in your life. Take radical steps against them and pursue Jesus with everything. For some of you, it needs to be the confession to a spouse or to a friend or to a pastor or to someone close in your life that you can say, hey, I gotta have somebody else in this fight. Others of you, there's gonna be some radical conversations, decisions that you need to make if you're gonna get serious at victory in this area. And I pray that through the power of Jesus, you would do that. Father, I love you and I thank you for your word because it gives life and gives freedom. And I pray that we would walk in that today. Bless us now as we walk in your word. In Jesus' name, and all God's people emphatically said,